You know, it'd be really fun. I was researching this earlier, and I think there's an abandoned hospital wing, not but a couple of hundred yards west of our current location. Nope. Any takers? Nope. What if you get a taser? Nope. Crowbar? No. Pepper spray? Nope. Nunchaka? Nope. Well, I guess we won't be gracing that hospital wing abandoned, boarded up with our presence. What about an old prison? No! Okay, I understand. We'll just go to the store and get capers for salmon tonight. The abandoned store. <laughs> In the dark. Hail to the now. Capers. Putting on a cape, putting on a ghost face mask and hood to get the capers. The Grim Reaper likes his capers. The Grim Caper. Bye. <laughs> I got nightmares in my head, I fear That the thoughts build up until I can't hear That my mind fills up into a creature And it haunts me somewhere much deeper Daisy Bell, we have made it to the fourth episode of Scream the TV series. How are you liking it thus far, your rewatch of this it season? It just gets better and better and better. No, seriously though, tell me how, tell me why. Well, I think it it just gets creepier the longer we're going on. Plus, they're kind of making it seem like Tyler is the killer this whole time. And now all of a sudden in this episode, that gets blown up. (laughs) Get it? Do you feel like we are more emotionally connected to the characters, thus the stakes are higher? Yeah, well, I think every episode we get a little bit more connected. I struggle to find an opening dialogue for this episode, not because there was a dearth of dialogue to pick from, but because... This quote, which will be the best exchange in this episode, I previously used in an earlier Faux Ghost introductory episode, but it's so good and Noah nails the points so accurately, I have no choice but to drop this dialogue on you again. Noah Foster talking to Emma and Audrey about the killer's lair. Holy Christmas. Oh, I knew it. It's a genuine killer's lair. That's a thing. Please don't get them started. A lair is an extension of the killer's psychosis. The root cellar in Psycho, Kevin Spacey's apartment in Seven. By the way, dreamy screamers, Red Devil and I will in fact be doing a review, slick flick pick for Seven. And that is one, life is like a what's in the box of chocolates. You never know whose head you're going to get. Anyways, back to Noah Foster, Kevin Spacey's apartment in Seven, Hannibal Lecter's kitchen. I mean, every fictional killer has one. So he's been living here? I highly doubt it. No, this looks staged. I mean, you see layers on TV, not in real life. Take Pretty Little Liars. They're always chock full of bloody little clues and creepy, unrealistic icons. I mean, seriously, how would A get her hands on four Victorian dolls that look just like the main characters. Where do you shop for that? Evil American Girl Doll Store? I can't believe you two came here without me. (sighs) Yeah, you're right. After you. This, of course, would be a scene in Fogo's face, Scream the TV series, where Daisy Bell and I, you are Noah Foster imposter, laugh hysterically and religiously every time it comes on. Never fails, right? 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 Yup. Beware, foe, ghost faces lair. Hello, dreamy screamers. 
Welcome to Noah's Nightmare, his place of part-time work and full-time sulking. Nightmare Level, that is the name of Noah's refuge, his fortress of solitude, if you will. But while he is reeling from Riley's untimely demise, we dream up and scream a new dreamy screamer surprise. Welcome to Fogo's Face, an episodic autopsy companion series to Scream, the TV series, seasons one and two. The TV series, which premiered on MTV, i.e. murderous television, where we scalpel deep and surgically critique this shamelessly delectable guilty party pleasure. Today, we will cut a devilishly delectable slice of the Scream, the TV series, Carnage Confection, with our fourth faux ghostface review of episode four, Aftermath. It is a bona fide undertaking to locate in the infinite digital sea a shipwrecked treasure of a television show worth pursuing and exploring. Though often proving a dry hole or fool's fucking gold, my tireless quest is occasionally rewarded with the indelible gem of a striking, mesmerizing, entertaining TV treat. Scream, the TV series, carries the torch of that very same treat. The source material, such a treasure trove of valuable, sparkling, brilliantly scripted matter spoken by comely faces who act well, seem genuine, and their ultimate fates to us matter. You are our dreamy screamers. For you are dreamy in your scream, and scream deep within your dreams. We politely ask you to parse and ponder the following consideration. Is it a dream within a scream, or a scream within a dream? Normally, I would venture to express that a scream within the subconscious confines of a dream would morph into a nightmare, but not here. Here, in your dreamy, dreamlike state, each scream makes you feel alive, for as others may be killed gruesomely at times, you instead shall thrive. As you strive to remain alive and stick with your living human hive, this is a place where the undertaker digs many a ditch. The middle class will pay just as the rich, and Nina's laptop password ain't but should be Thunder Bitch. So good. I love the, I mean, from the beginning, I love it, but especially in this episode, I love the relationship that we get to see between Noah and Audrey. Welcome, dreamy screamers, to Fogo's face. In this fourth episode, bloodletting has slowed. Lord of the Lies, the slasher's lair unoccupied, a trail of pig's blood dried, and our dear trio trapped inside. Does the truth reside where the mask was made or drip off the edge of this buck knife blade? Here, Emma's welcomed to Noah's nightmare. Brooke's grief shopping and the hottest click sits on the bloody block for chopping. Message on a hospital wall in stencil and blood, mimicking the note hand delivered to HUD. You recall, in episode three, HUD got a little ghost face stencil that said, Nice try. Nice try, dumbass. Mimicking. Can't defib relate, jumpstart a headless pig absent its heart. Noah tags along where his pale, narrow ass don't belong. Dead or a live man's trap? 
Though none are slain today, this verbose slasher still has much to say, and his grim game they must still play. While the body count's been rising, we've been on who wears the mask theorizing. Now it is time for Serialized Killer Trivia. Why don't you take the first one, Daisy Bell? Body count in this episode, zero. We don't have any victims, which is surprising because there's a lot of anticipation and jump scares in this episode. Pretty much from the time that they go to the abandoned hospital to the end of the episode. It's one of those clever plot devices that really works here. A lesser show would have more violence, higher body count, almost senseless killing. Thus far, the killings seem extremely meticulous and motivated. So maybe for this episode, instead of talking about the scariest scene, I think we would agree probably the scariest part of the episode is the abandoned hospital. So is there a scene within that location that you feel was most scary? Well, let's just think here for a second. As we parse this episode, I know that it will come to me. But this episode, I think, had no less than three moments where you're really, really curious what the fuck's going to happen. And in that curiosity, the blood pressure skyrockets and the heart palpitates. To me, much like each episode that we've seen so far, it's a master of suspense. It's shot in a way from certain camera angles where you have these really intimate moments with the characters. It's the yin and the yang. So when Brooke is sitting by the lake and it's the middle of the day, and it's just this tiny petite gal on this hill. Jake ultimately comes up behind her, but at no point was I thinking she's going to have her throat slashed. So that was a moment. And like when she's at the pool talking to her dad, I did not worry about what was going to befall her. But whenever a character is alone, you really have to wonder what is going to happen here. Obviously, when Emma and Audrey head to the abandoned hospital down off the turnpike, that was closed down six or seven years ago per Noah, there's a brief scene where they're entering the abandoned hospital as they're prying the plywood off, and you can see what looks like something or someone staring at them from a killer's vantage. Right, yeah. That's how it starts, and that is creepy because then that makes the whole following scene of them kind of wandering aimlessly through the hospital, it makes it, it raises the stakes, basically, because it makes you feel or think that the killer's inside the hospital. You know that something is going to be found completely related to the killings because of the killer's message on where the truth lies. But Emma had to do a little bit of town and soul searching to find where that was. It required her comrades and it required some logical steps to be taken. Therefore, I think the killer should reward them for doing their homework and solving at least a fraction of the puzzle. Another serialized killer trivia, Emma, Audrey, and Noah find Tyler's decapitated head behind a Brandon James mask. This is an important detail in the story. All this time, Tyler was their chief suspect. The moment that head is found, where his body was found in that Chevelle, everything changes. This is the first of two unrevealed locations that involved Brandon James. The first was the hospital. And the other one was in a bowling alley, which will be shown at a later time in season one. Brandon James, no matter how much time passes, and no matter how these characters try to live their lives, they cannot seem to outrun the past. I also made an observation here 
That is not technically part of the IMBD trivia, but it is probably worth noting. This episode, 4, is completely devoid of Karen Wilcox. Oh, I didn't, I didn't even think about that. I learned a long time ago, though, not to think too hard, especially with TV programs. Oh, why isn't this actor in this episode? Most of the time, it has to deal with their contract, salary, right. uh, a medical situation comes up and they just can't be present. And the writers are deft enough to find a way to have them not be present, but in a way that doesn't affect the overarching story. And considering the plot and locations of this particular episode, it kind of makes sense because Kiernan isn't really part of the group at this point. Logically, the only time that they would run into him is at school. And they're not at school for this whole episode. Emma and Kieran are not officially dating or anything of the like. So yes, I agree with your assessment. Now, Scream, Episode 4, Aftermath Begins. Noah's t-shirt. This would not be a true faux ghost face session without commenting on the wardrobe of Noah Foster. It is a ultimate confrontation. Black versus white, Yeti versus Bigfoot, the ultimate throwdown. Ridiculous graphic tee. We learn that the Brandon James mask was found near the car that exploded off of the bridge. As far as we're concerned, HUD and the local townspeople, Audrey and Emma being a minor exception, there's no reason to think that Tyler was not extremely involved. His headless corpse, the mask, his car, fleeing the scene of a crime. It's very linear and it's very sensical to suspect that Tyler is in fact the killer. Oh, but wait, we learned in the pilot that Tyler's head was cut off. So this is misdirection on at least all the members of the cast. But we as the audience know something that the cast does not know. This is one of three plot choices that are possible in film, where we are in a unique position to know more than the cast members. Now that is dangerous, because sometimes when you do that, you run the risk of the cast seeming ignorant. And if the cast is too ignorant, you start losing concern and consideration for them. But here it's fair, because there's no way they could know what we know. Because the one person that saw Tyler's decapitated head, Nina, was killed in gruesome fashion. So I actually don't fault the cast for not already figuring it out. I also love that they're keeping this up where you get the occasional camera angles from a possible killer's perspective. That continues the suspense. It keeps things nice and friction-worthy, where just when you want to feel safe, you're reminded of why you shouldn't be. We get a great song played early in the episode. I absolutely love it, and we will get to the songs closer to the end of the episode. I also love Brooke's comment about waterproof mascara ain't waterproof. Speaking to a fellow woman here and now, Daisy Bell, is that true? The only waterproof mascara I've ever used is L'Oreal brand. And even though that is like bottom of the barrel brand, probably compared to most makeup aficionados, which I am not, it works really well. In fact, it's really hard to get off whenever you want to take your mascara off. I don't know what she's using, but L'Oreal is the way to go. Maybe Brooke just cries particularly salty and corrosive tears. That's true. I also noticed that there is... It's funny how people are always making comments about passive or subtle racism. However, what about when you're saying something positive? You're still making a generalization, but it happens to be positive. But what's funny is, to me, you're still applying a generalization. And I don't know if people take exception more with generalizations or when they're attached to something negative or a negative viewpoint or a negative critique or admonishment. But in this case, Brooke and Emma are talking about how great Riley's skin was, and they said Riley did not have to wear makeup. 
Well, it's already established that Riley is Asian. It's really racial profiling, but I think the term should be changed, where if you make a generalization and it's a positive one, it should be called racial elevation or elevating. Do you think that that term would catch on? Racial elevation? Because you're elevating a race based on a generalized status? Well, I think it probably depends on the race. Any race. As long as it's a group of people and you're applying it to the whole. If you make a compliment or you say something that's congratulatory or complimentary, I think you've just elevated that group. Because the big complaint, right, is if you make a disparaging comment about a group of people or things, you are showing your own ignorance because you are not seeing that there could be more variation in that group. Mm -hmm. But if you said, for example, Asian people have great skin, you may be incorrect, but I fail to see the harm in statements like that where you're generalizing, but in a positive direction. Do you? No, I'm, I don't think it would be derogatory if that's what you're asking. I think if we're giving a positive, I don't think anybody would have a problem with that. So would it be fair to say that when you make a derogatory comment about a group of people, people take more issue with the insult and less issue with the fact that it was a generalized statement? Yeah, I guess. I, I haven't really thought through that question, but naturally people are going to, in our society, people are going to react to a negative assumption. Yeah, assumption just based on race. Because that is, I mean, it is generalizing, but it's also negative. So mm-hmm. I guess what you're asking is, is there a difference or is it bad in both situations to generalize whether it's positive or negative? And I think people wouldn't have a problem with the positive because that's the whole goal. We're wanting to lift one another up. But of course, you know, people would have a, a take issue with a negative generalization. It's just an important distinction to vocalize on because to me, it's assumed with that, like, I think it's kind of a tacit assumption that if you make negative comments about a group of people, it was never really clear if people took more exception with the comments or who it was directed at. And so you really kind of get the double whammy where it's like, fuck you for saying something negative. But then on top of the fuck you in response, you're ignorant because you are applying a, say, a limited viewpoint to a large collection of individuals. And in doing so, you've just revealed your own ignorance. But if you make a positive statement, most people aren't going to stop you in your tracks and say, well, you're wrong. Asian people do not have beautiful skin. Only a small amount of Asian people or this percentage of Asian people have beautiful skin. Most people are not going to be quick to correct you when you're trying to assert a positive. I just think that's an interesting distinction, Mm -hmm. even though you're still making a generalization and you still are probably just as wrong in that generalization as you are in a negative generalization. Interesting food for thought. But I think that what I like about this cast is not only is it a diverse cast, but this show never felt like a diverse cast just for what they call racial tokenism. It actually feels like a diverse cast of organic high schoolers that would be working in tandem with gossiping, with trying to solve these little murder mysteries. The cast feels very organic to me, and I appreciate that. It doesn't feel forced or shoehorned. I miss Riley, though, because Riley was a good foil for Noah, and she was plucky. Well, and she bridged the gap between the groups in a way. She was a nerd, but she was also part of the in crowd. And I don't think she was as wealthy as, say, Brooke or Nina. I got that impression that she was more middle class. Vigilante justice. That is a term that Noah will use to talk about his and Audrey's quest to exact revenge on who is responsible for Riley's death. By Curious and the Virgin. Remember these terms as these monikers will be used throughout the rest of the show, or at least until one or both of them are possibly brutally murdered. Who really knows? I also noticed that this nice assembly, we get to see the mayor, 
give a nice little presentation to the citizens of Lakewood. But I noticed that while Will and Jake are talking and looking at the cell phone footage of Tyler's car burning, Piper is there. And the camera shows her looking at Will and Jake, close but probably not close enough to overhear them. She looks at them twice, and the camera shows her out in the assembly hall when Audrey is talking to HUD and making accusations about the police department simply trying to pin all of the crimes on Tyler. Also, I love HUD's pissed off face. He's polite to Audrey, but he's basically like, screw you, wench. Now, do you think that Piper was close enough in the assembly to hear the discussion between Will and Jake? Or do you think she's just kind of keeping a keen investigative reporter eye on them? I think she's just taking note. I mean, they're talking really close, Will and Jake, which wouldn't be normal behavior for two high school boys. So I think she's just taking note that they're probably talking about something in a secretive manner. My observation is that all of this is natural because Piper is simply acting as a reporter, as you would expect. I like Will's line at the coffee shop, Riley's insane espresso tolerance. As Will and Emma wax nostalgia, their observations are believable and they are hitting the proper emotional notes. Do you feel like the hug between Emma and Will was dumb as shit or did you buy it? Because I bought it personally. Yeah, I bought it. I mean... Sometimes, obviously, I love the show, but sometimes I think there's some little hokey moments. And a lot of times that involves Emma, (laughs) in my opinion. I like Emma, but, you know, sometimes it's a little much. And so that one, I I would say, I guess I'm kind of on the fence. I bought it, but I was like, okay, let's move on. And then I love how Brooke is always Brooke, even in mourning. Her last line on the phone after she hangs up with Emma, Black Onyx, Riley would approve. Brooke is so very materialistic, but it's, It's weird. It doesn't vex me as it normally would, not just because it's Brooke and Brooke kind of gets a pass, but it's more like because this is how Brooke stays true to her character. She can't suddenly take this 180 degree flip around where she has abandoned all material goods, but she is now shopping and collecting her thoughts in a way that is rooted to her prior friendship with Riley. And you can see that she's clearly troubled by her brutal death. There is a poll that is sent out to all of the students. Lakewood's hottest clique is being murdered. Who is next on the chopping block, Brooke or Emma? Well, as you can imagine, it's overwhelmingly voted by the students that Brooke will be next, and Emma has like two votes. What the shit? But the specific numbers for the unpardonable pedants out there. Vote for Brooke. So far, she has 346 votes, and Emma, two. Brooke is in the midst of grief shopping, which is funny, because Brooke is grief shopping, And later we will learn that Noah is grief gaming. Yep. George Washington High School, 1994. A yearbook arrives, possibly by courier, through the regular mail, I don't know. But it arrives at the Duvall residence. This is a very fucked high school photo album. There are pictures of various students that were killed that have been cut out very neatly, I might add. I mean, she or he trimmed the borders of those little high school pictures very well. The one survivor of the previous Lakewood slashing in 1994, Kevin Duvall. His face is simply scratched out violently, but not removed from the photo yearbook album. I thought that was interesting. And we have two names here, Margaret Anderson, a.k.a. Daisy, a.k.a. Maggie, the coroner slash slash (laughs) Emma's mom, and Kevin Duvall. Written above the picture, it says, The truth lies where... The mask was made. Where was the mask made? Don't worry. This is something that we don't yet know, but we will find out. 
And then, of course, Noah's reaction to this yearbook is hilarious. First, he's like, what? It's a yearbook. What's the big deal? As soon as Emma opens it and he sees the cutout pictures, he's like, holy Manson photo album. <laughs> and then uh, he, he says something that's actually very shrewd, a little analog for a killer who's been using social media and cloning phones. Noah is pretty clever, and he identifies that even though people may switch things up, generally they will stick to a style or a modus operandi, so that does seem a little bit unusual. But then Emma's reaction is pretty clever as well. She says, well, this is personal, or this is something very specific and likely serves a very specific purpose. And then when Noah says to Emma in his little video game, collectible, comic, Fortress of Solitude, or Fortress of Dorkitude, he says, welcome to my nightmare. It's one of the first times, if not the first time, I can't recall, that Noah, Audrey, and Emma are all present at nightmare level. And it's very cool to see them there. And Red Devil has the eyes of a hawk and noticed a Funko bobblehead of Killer Croc. I love Funko bobbleheads. They're just so expensive. Very expensive. Now, how badass would it be if we found Funko bobbleheads for Scream, the TV series? Ooh, I haven't even looked. I don't know. I do not I know. Could, I mean, they have Funko bobbleheads for a lot. They sure do. Now, Killer Croc was a subterranean sewer-dwelling creature in Batman, one of my favorite villains, although his body and his strength are not matched by his wanting intellect. And I do not like it when his tail gets ripped off. So gross. I forget the movie. I want to say it was Attack on Arkham or something like that. But yeah, there's a scene where Batman is not fucking around, and he just rips Killer Croc's tail off. And if I learn the animated film, because we've seen just about all of them, in which Batman does rip his tail off, I will provide you an update. Noah has some grief gaming to do, as Emma and Audrey decide they are going to head to this abandoned hospital, thank Christ for Noah, who educated them on where the surgery took place, where Brandon's post-op surgical mask was made, and it is an abandoned Lakewood General Hospital that's over by the turnpike. So these two ladies decide that they will go without Noah because it would be like a four-year-old at Disneyland. We would have to keep Noah on a leash. Did you like the scene where Noah turned his head in the game chair lair? I wonder, did he hear? This is how I always interpreted the scene. No volume was on on his headphones. So he heard what they said. We're going to the hospital now. I didn't think that the first time I watched it. It's I, probably just more like he realizes that they're like gone. Like, oh, yeah. Okay. They're and leaving. that's got to be where they're going. Yeah. Kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I like Brooke's dress. Of course you do, because it's the shortest dress in the history of dresses. See, I didn't even notice what you noticed, because I was only looking at it when she was sitting at the bar of the kitchen, talking to her father, who was making some homemade lemonade, possibly with some gin in it. They call that color blocking. Okay. Well, it was half black, half blue, like navy blue. Yeah. A little lighter than navy blue, maybe. Royal blue, perhaps. Yeah, royal blue. But I'll she, give you that. But she just looks so posh in that dress. And of course, it's not hard to look good in clothes when you weigh 97 pounds and you have blemishless skin, but it's a good dress. And she has very exquisite fashion sense. Ashram. Did you know what the word ashram meant? Is that where her mom is? So Brooke's dad uses the word like your mom's at ashram as though it's a noun. And I looked it up. So ashram, especially in South Asia, a hermitage, monastic community, or other place of religious retreat. Mm. So ashram in this sense... It's a general term where they could be located anywhere in the world. Yeah. But it could also be a proper name. Like maybe this ashram is called ashram. It's possible. Mm -hmm. But that's what it means. We learned that Will, with even though he's got them thick, kissable lips, he's still going to need $63,000 to get into Duke. 
Perhaps if he would start kissing some ass, some collegiate ass, maybe if he would start kissing the ass of the provost with those big buttery lips, maybe they would give him a discount. But Way to make it creepy. This is what this show for Ghostface is all about. Making not, things creepy? Not for the faint of hearts. Oh. Looks like Will's going to be taking up old blackmail again in Nina and Tyler's death stead. Because he needs 63k for Duke. And unlike Jakey Poo, he's not flush with cash. Okay, this is the arsenal that Audrey has in her trunk. A stun gun and a crowbar. Audrey's arsenal. What explanation do we get for these weapons of choice? She has an overprotective father. I, personally, love the abandoned hospital set piece. All of it. It reminds me of a video game that I know Wham Bam Cam, my main man Wham Bam Cam, if you're listening, I say cheerio and toodles, but I hope you're doing good, man. I haven't heard from you in a while. Hope all is well. But it reminds me of a game that both Wham Bam Cam and I loved called The Evil Within. There is a scene in the hospital when you're walking through and something starts attacking you. It is an invisible creature. And the way to trick it is you go over by the elevator where there's a puddle of bloody water and you wait till it makes a footstep in the water. And then you know you have that location and you pull the trigger and you defeat this. But there's these rusted out gurneys in the middle of the Mm -mm. hallway. I would never. This hospital scene, Dreamy Screamers, reminds me of the episode Asylum from the first season of Supernatural. Isn't that one of your favorite episodes, Red Devil? Isn't it one of the scariest? Very scary. Ooh, yeah. I didn't even think about that whenever I watched this, but absolutely. And what's scarier than an abandoned asylum, but an abandoned asylum with ghosts, evil demon ghosts in it. And they go to this abandoned hospital in broad daylight. Yeah, and it's still scary Still fucking shit. terrifying. Very well done. I wish these set pieces were longer, because this is where the show really shines. I mean, there are three, just off the top of my mind, there are three moments in this sequence that I think were some of the scariest of the show so far. And we are going to delve the fuck into those really quickly here. I love two things. One... The creepy, disconcertingly upsetting hospital stagecraft. And that the deaths, Riley, Rachel, they have consequences for those who still remain. They go in their denial, insane. And those still breathing remain grieving. This show keeps its word. Noah Foster said very early on in this show, we have to care about the characters so that when they're brutally murdered, it hurts. When Nina died, when Riley died, when Rachel died, these members of Lakewood who still survive and remain alive, they grieve for their friends. They don't just immediately dismiss it or move the fuck along. There's also a great dialogue here. Audrey says, how do we know the killer is not a chick? It's a fair question. Emma's response. Well, it was a man's voice on the phone. Okay, come on, dumb asset. You know better than that. This is 2015. We are not unsophisticated with our technology. So if a dumbass is for a male, I see what you did there. I say a dumbasset is for a female. It's the polite variation. Audrey, for one dollar ninety nine cents, you can have a voice changer app. (laughs) Yeah. What does she say? Hello, Emma. Basically, through the and 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 it's funny because you don't see it coming. That was actually about that. I think that's what she says. That was a creepy moment. And it also was like, duh, Emma, you're being obtuse. Right. That was funny. And then, of course, Emma's immediate reaction, which I would have had to say is, no, God, don't do that, especially here. I would have screamed. <laughs> Thank you, Audrey. There is a huge fucking blood trail that is smack in the middle of the hallway, and it is gallons of gore in liquid form, and it must smell 
to high hell. Yeah, I don't know how it took them so long to like notice that. Just saying. Well, you imagine they're in a pitch black room. They've got their little flashlight phones. It wasn't until they looked straight down that they noticed it. I'm going to be fair in my assumption assessment of their behavior. But then we see a ghost mask, obviously used by Stencil, unless they're just a great freehand graffiti artist, and blood. Fuck that shit. It reminds me of the note hand-delivered to HUD. The pig is dead, laying on the hospital gurney. No head, no heart. It was freaky. The first time I saw this, I was thinking, oh, geez, is this perhaps another dead body that they're about to stumble on? A headless, heartless piece of bacon. And it also is good because it all comes around full circle. A heart was sent to Maggie, the heart of a pig. The head is missing from the body. These are points of observation that are worth stewing on. Because clearly, the intricacy to this killer or killer's plan is, this is the kind of person you want to work with meticulous, attention to detail, remembers points that had previously been made or asserted. I love it. And what do we get? Oh, I love the never eating bacon again. (laughs) Ha ha, whatever. That scene would not deter me from eating bacon. I don't know. I mean, I didn't eat chicken for the longest time after I had to dissect one in biology. Ooey. Then we are blessed with a tag along where he don't belong. Noah is following these tough broads and he's wearing his hood over his head. Why? Well, it's a good plot device. Yeah, that was scary. That probably is either the first or the second scariest moment for me in that episode, because I really thought it was the killer. It's fantastic. And then I love that when Emma reaches forward to tase what she thinks is faux ghost face, she narrowly misses, but Noah falls on his ass. First words out of his mouth are essentially, did you just try to tase my man parts? (laughs) Now they are a trio again, the three musketeer, two muskets, and they're working together and they all have a vested interest in this. Noah basically saw Riley as the love of his life. Emma is being taunted. Her family is being threatened. And Audrey lost Rachel over this. They all have a little faux ghost dog in the fight and they all have reason to be there. You could also see, right, why they would risk life and limb to investigate further is this is a hanging Chad that they cannot leave without either dying or extracting the firm and full truth. What do we see in this Kevin Spacey layer from Seven? Rachel's figurine, Nina's necklace, and Riley's keychain. They call those mementos or keepsakes. This killer is taking some goodies. And we see the missing yearbook pictures hanging up all creepy-like. What the fuck? Ah, Nina's laptop was left behind. This has got to be where the malware will be. I also noticed that her laptop wallpaper is strange. It's a handcuffed babe with a lace blindfold who's clearly shown in peril. This was on Nina's laptop. That's very odd. Is it a damsel in distress or a distressing damsel? Hmm. Nightmare level. Video games, comics, and collectibles. By the way, that is where Noah Foster hangs out. That is the full name of his Fortress of Dorkitude. They, and this leads to one of the scariest scenes of the hospital set piece, as they are downloading the goods, and now Emma did some fast thinking. She's like, Audrey, if you have a SIM card in your camcorder or your handheld, I can transfer the data on this laptop that we do not have time to crack now onto the SIM card. So they do, things get very suspenseful, but they're able to download onto the SIM card things from the laptop. But as they're leaving, they get a little greedy. And they look up and see the Brandon James mask on what they think is a styrofoam dummy. When they reach up and touch that bitch, it falls. The mask slides off. 
and it is the rotting Jason Voorhees mother's head, Tyler's decapitated head that has been rotting for several days. So now, gross. Which leads to a trifecta scream, Noah screaming in the highest octave of all. It is absolutely <laughs> amazing. We laugh every time. They immediately bolt for the hospital as Noah so expertly identifies intruder alert, and they get stopped by Sheriff Hud, who sounds for the first time ever in the show pissed off. All of you stop what you're doing right now and come with me. Well, he is pissed because the evidence in all likelihood may be considered neutralized or in need of being thrown out on account of them being at an active crime scene. Thanks a lot, Trio. But Emma fires right back when he's like, why did you not come to me first when you had these messages, when you got the yearbook delivered to your home? And she says, just like Noah made comments previously and Audrey, they are all very suspicious and they have lost all trust and faith in the local police department because the last time their friend was brutally murdered or executed in style, however you choose to see it, Riley was at the goddamn police station. I do not blame them for being skeptical and having scruples regarding the efficacy of Lakewood PD. What about you? I don't know that I would have been brave enough to go into a hospital and see all that stuff. But yeah, I totally get where they're coming from as far as their distrust of the police. I love how Sheriff Hud both scolds them and admits, yeah, something's amiss. Somewhere between realizing that Tyler's decapitated body and his head are were in two completely different locations over the course of 24 hours, something's going on here. Noah and Audrey, the bi-curious and the virgin, working together. Okay, Noah and Audrey, virgin and bi-curious, working together. They are desperately trying to get answers. They're trying to extract the information on this SIM card. They pull up a folder off of Nina's laptop and realize there are, for those unpardonable pedants out there that are really paying attention to the detail, seven blackmail folders. There's a folder on Brooke, Emma, Jake, Quinn, that's Quinn Maddox, the mayor, Riley, Sheriff Hud, and Will. Lastly, Principal Schohauer, who we have not really seen or heard from. But this tells me that Nina was plugged into that community. We have the mayor, the sheriff, and the head principal of Lakewood High School, or George Washington High School. That tells you all you need to know. Things get really interesting here. First of all, there was some great acting from Noah in this episode. I really believe that he's reeling from the loss of Riley, and I believe that he was scared shitless in that hospital. But here he's doing some Chris Hemsworth black hat type work on this laptop, and accidentally, because it is a hidden executable, he ends up uploading a video titled Emma to a listserv, and this was all happening behind the scenes, so there's nothing that Noah could have known or done about this. But ultimately, it sends out the video that was, I guess, taken in Will's house, Will didn't even know about, controlled by Nina through a laptop webcam, I think. And it captured Emma's first time with Will, and this listserv is basically every resident of Lakewood. So here in a few seconds, everyone in Lakewood will get a video uploaded to their email or their listserv, where they get to watch Emma's first time with Will on video. Holy shnikey shitballs. And of course, the last two lines from Noah and Audrey are, it's, it's a hidden executable. It's, it's, it's being loaded to a listserv. What listserv? And then bam, all of their phones light up and you realize as they realize what happened. Also, Noah uses a term here that I don't think I'd ever heard before called amuse bouche. Have you ever heard of that? No, I haven't. So an amuse-bouche, probably most likely, yeah, it's a French term, you know, no shit Sherlock type thing. A small savory item of food served as an appetizer before a meal. 
So that's the common usage of the term. But in this case, he's not talking about food or appetizers or wetting the appetite. Instead, this is what is really meant by his usage of this French term. Small, single bite-sized hors d'oeuvre that is meant to start off the dinner and prepare the palate for the rest of what's to come. But what it literally translates to, I only say literally because this is a literal definition of a term, mouth amuser. It is different from appetizers in that it is not ordered from a menu by patrons, but is served free and according to the chef's selection alone. This is very interesting. But in this case, it was really just his clever artistic way of saying, yes, you were giving me this possible password for Nina's laptop of Thunderbitch. What you're really saying, Audrey, is that we all hate Nina and we all remember why. But it's excellent usage of dialogue in this episode, as you would expect from a cleverly crafted faux ghostface Scream the TV series episode. Total tween body count zero. The massacred bodies have dropped to zip, but so soon will fresh blood feel a buck knife's tip. Before I get to the tunes for the loons, Daisy Bell, did you have any other thoughts about this episode? Not really anything to add, just a really solid second half of the episode. Like, all of the scary moments and jump scares, all of that was so good in this episode. Time for tunes for the post-op surgical mask-wearing loons. All the things lost by Miss Mister or MS space MR. This is a montage as Piper's podcast comments about Riley's death and Brooke and Emma console each other. I love that song. I love it. That's the song that I was referring to at the beginning. When You Go by Avak Sands. Emma thanks Piper for what she said about Riley on her podcast. Piper suggests that Tyler may not be the killer. Rescue My Heart by Liz Longley. Jake meets Brooke by the lake and confronts her over her concerns that she abandoned Riley. Also, not only is it a phenomenal song, but the songs they are selecting for the scenes are extremely concomitant and complimentary. Lastly, we have Wait Just a Minute by Mazika. M-Y-Z-I-C-A. Mazika? Mazika? Emma suggests Piper not leave town at the coffee shop. Well, as this video is being uploaded to everyone's cell phone, Emma is having a great conversation with Piper at the coffee shop. Piper's about to head out of town. Her story is basically done. She asks Emma if she can whip up a little foam topping and show her how to do the little maple leaf squiggly thing on top of the coffee and foam. And then everyone, all of the patrons, Emma herself and Piper all receive this uploaded video. And that is when you learn from Emma's own mouth, it's my first time. Daisy Bell, why don't you share the story about your new purchase, your new necklace, where it is your birth flower, and tell us what that birth flower arguably is. Oh, yeah. So I was looking up. I wanted something creative as a new necklace, and I saw this cool idea where you can get jewelry with your birth flower, which I had definitely heard about. You have a birthstone, right? But birth flower is a little less known. At least it was to me. I googled what is the birth flower for April. And it's a daisy. Now, arguably, it can also be sweet pea. I guess we have two. I don't know how that works. Are you kidding me? Daisy? How weird that it just shows that the universe has weird, weird things going on. It's all connected. So it makes sense. I'm Daisy Bell. Kieran's still a beefcake. The Jake. For Brooks, not a flake. And faux ghostface takes fucking keepsakes. Those still breathing suffer in their grieving. The pig invokes Lord of the Flies. But is this culprit candid or Lord of the Lies? 
We see a glimpse of Emma's first time, and though no killing this time, hacking's still a cybercrime. Dream a little scream for us, dreamy screamers. Or stream a little scream for us, streaming screamers. Scream the TV series is available on Netflix. It is the only streaming platform I am aware of that it is currently playing for free. You have probably watched many a YouTube video or a TikTok video about people showing you things they love and admire and have a bona fide passion for. Scream the TV series is a rare pursuit that both Daisy Bell and your Noah Foster, the imposter, feel a real longing for, a real passion for, and we love dissecting this for you. Can you spot the killer's brand? Cold knife clutched in their blood-red hand. The pilot proved a pulse-pounding blast. Episode 2 shouts from the stadium, alleyway, and balcony that the main cast can't. Foe Ghostface outrun, outthink, or outlast. In episode 3, the slasher would not leave Noah's first love be. And though we were spared human bloodshed in episode 4, there was a headless fucking pig. Bloody Foe Ghostface stencil and hidden executable blackmail executed by Bicurious and the Virgin. Lakewood's body counts grown to four. More dead bodies will soon be in the morgue stored. For the slasher seeks more bloodstains on the scoreboard. And as always, craves more gore. Until the killer finds a new fixation, Emma's friends will find salvation, provided they avoid balconies, hot tubs, and the understaffed police station. If you listen intently and watched with focused peepers, you just might catch the next chapter coming. Fogo's face. We're granted a stay with episode 5. Those still alive, for their dead may pray. Candle lit hypocrite. Doubly dark daddy issues. Your host, the Noah Foster imposter, falsetto prophet, and co-host, Daisy. You'll meet me in hell, Bell. Red Devil. Out. Out.